Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the Myrna Minkoff to my Ignatius J. Riley, Brandon. <laughs> How's it going, Tony? You made those uh, easy to pronounceable uh, names. Brandon, we're going deep. We're yeah, gonna we really start, are. We're starting to, get, we're going to go, this is a relatively obscure literary reference. Wow. To the book. A Confederacy of Dunces, which is one of the funniest. I think I've read it three times. That's anyway. If, if people are if people are into comic novels, it's it's a classic um, and quite a crazy story. Of the author was a young man who who uh, committed suicide actually, and his mother worked for years and years to get this book published, and when she finally did. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, wow. That's insane. Yeah. It's really funny, man. I mean, wow. it's 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 a hilarious book. But um, I'll have yeah. to read it based on the title alone. I know. I know. It's a, it's just a fantastic title. Yeah. So, dude, it's, it's uh, summer in February. How's that <laughs> treating you? It's absolutely wonderful. I can't believe how nice it was yesterday. 60 some odd degrees in uh-huh. February in uh-huh. Minnesota. And it's going to be like 70 next Sunday or something. See, I don't know how I can go back to a normal winter after this. I got to be honest. Going to be tough. It's going to be real tough. Yeah, I just spent the weekend in um, southwest Florida around the Fort Myers area with some family members. And, you know, everybody down there who like all the snowbirds, they're all like, oh, it's been a really crappy winter. It's been cloudy and windy. And I'm (laughs) like, yeah, you didn't even need to leave Minnesota because... It's been super nice. <laughs> Did you uh, check out any spring training action while you were there? I didn't. You know, nobody in my fam, everybody in my family is like baseball's so boring. So, but baseball's yeah. your thing. I know. So th- I'm not gonna. <laughs> I just didn't want to go alone. It was like this kind of family weekend. Sure. And I'm like, I don't want to leave for six hours to go watch the Twins. I mean, I did want to go, yeah, but yeah. I felt a little like. Uh, I'd be taking one of the cars and then, you know, I'd be gone all day. And so I did not, sadly. Um, no, we mainly just chilled. I, I read a book and hung. Yeah, we hung out. It was nice. Oh, good. That sounds like a good yeah, time. Yeah. And now, now um, I came home to boxes of my books <laughs> in the garage. So I got to hold my new book for the first time when I. Got home from the airport last night, which was super fun. I got a copy for you, Brandon. I'll Heck, give it I to can't you. Wait. I'll give it to you in Sioux Falls this coming weekend. Wonderful. When I see you. Uh yeah. And so I'll be at Pheasant Fest, and I know you will be too. Uh and in Sioux Falls. And then the next weekend I'll be in at Canoe Copia in Madison, Wisconsin, and just starting to line up different. Uh, speaking gigs you can see them all on the reverendhunter.com that's pretty exciting stuff so yeah it's just that it's that time when a book comes out when like the momentum is building and you know fingers crossed and prayers said and incense burned to the universe that (laughs) people will enjoy the book what's um what's the official release date that that the official release date is yeah thanks for asking april 2nd and for those of you in the, you know, in spitting distance of the Twin Cities, uh, and Brandon, I'd love to see you there and hope some of the Ron Share Productions and Talk North crew will come. Uh, 
April 2nd at Wooden Hill Brewery in Edina, Minnesota is the official book release party. And uh, yeah, I'd love to see a lot of people there. Yeah, I think I'm going to make it down for that for sure. It sounds That'll like be, it'll yeah, be a good time. It'll be fun. Suge, the, the, probably the most popular guest ever on the Reverend Hunter podcast, Suge Emery will be there and give a little talk because he's read the book. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. So it should be fun. Um, the guy, the guy, my guest today, John Daly, has also written a book. It's coming out a little later than mine. I think it's coming out in August, uh, but you can already pre-order it on all the, you know, all the bookie websites. Tough Rugged Bastards is the name. He's he's a Marine who was in the Corps, had been maybe in the Corps for, I don't know, eight or ten years when... Um, you know, his life changed when all our lives changed on 9-11, but his life changed like on a dime because he was, you know, within 24 hours, he was on a ship heading toward a combat zone and then ended up in a, a unit of special forces that was brand new in the Marine Corps and became one of the leaders in that unit. Um, and then he has since written a book about it. He still trains special forces Marines. Uh, but really, you know, just w one of those interviews that I like to do because here's somebody whose experience of life is so different than mine. Uh, I think he's a year younger than me. And when I was, you know, heading off to uh, bougie Ivy League schools, uh, he was, you know, fighting terrorists. Uh, so... It's good, I think. I mean, one of the things I like to do is is talk to people who have different perspectives on life and have different life experiences, and and this is surely one of those. So, yeah, I, I really like talking to them. No, yeah, I thought it was a very interesting listen on my part, too, just because, yeah, it's it was kind of cool to hear. I mean, cool is, is a weird word to use from it, but it, it was interesting to hear just, like you said, how fast things changed for him and you know, I, I I read a decent amount, watched a decent amount on TV of all this stuff happening because yep. that's when war coverage and TV was really hitting its its stride. And yeah, I I just can't even imagine what what was what he was going through at that right. time. I was 18 when all this stuff happened. So yeah, yeah, and yeah, and and I will say before we get to the interview that just as a a heads up, you know, we don't. I, I I'm not the kind of person or interviewer who shies away from any kind of topics, um, but John does talk quite openly about what it's like to kill human beings. We could talk a lot about killing animals on this podcast, but it it's not that often we talk about um, killing other people in warfare. But he does. I mean, that's been his experience. Yeah. So he he talks openly about it. And if that's something that for any of you who are listeners, if, if that's just not something you're ready for today, then maybe pause this episode and, and come back to it on a day you feel a little better about that. But um, yeah. Well, you know, and it is one of those questions, though, that I think pops up in most people's brain when they are talking to somebody that has served and has been, have seen active duty. Um, I think it does naturally come across people's brains. I just don't yeah. think people actually ask it. I think know, you're right. Understandably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't want to ask somebody at a cocktail party, what was it like to kill your first human being? <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. But maybe here on this podcast, if if you are curious about that, or at least how it affected this one guy, 
and he's pretty candid and yeah. honest about how how it affected him um and it, i think it surprised him in the way it did affect him so yeah i hope uh people will find this episode intriguing thanks for listening as always if you're going to be at pheasant fest or canoe copia please uh track me down come listen to my talk uh, i'll have books for sale but there's also lots of other venues to buy the god of wild places uh and I'd love to have your support, not only in the podcast, but in the book. So thanks as always for listening. And here's my conversation with retired Marine and a tough, rugged bastard himself, John Daly. Hey, John, you're a tough, rugged bastard from what I've heard. <laughs> that's a rumor. Is that, is that true? <laughs> or is that not just something you call yourself? That's actually a legit descriptor. Now, well, that was as the the title of the book. That was I was really meant to be inclusive of the the organization that I had the the great opportunity to be a part of, not as a, a personal descriptor. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, before we even get into that, you want to get your disclaimer out of the way. Yes, I have been told that uh, before appearing on any podcast, I have to say that my views are mine alone and do not reflect the Department of Defense, the United States Special Operations Command, or the Marine Corps uh, Special Operations in any way. All right, and that's it. We won't. Uh, we'll, we'll. We will abide by that and not <laughs> hold any of your organizations accountable for uh, any anything you say. Um, well, we were brought together by mutual friend who uh, regularly encourages me to have guests on uh, a former Marine of yours, uh, Worth Parker. So yes. I've, uh, yeah, I trust Worth implicitly, but I still, you know, <laughs> looked up what you were all about, even though uh, Worth t told me, and when he tells me to do something, I just do it. Cause I think all of us, you know, when us, I think we all do. Well, us civilians, it's when generally a Marine, good advice. <laughs> when a Marine tells you to do something and you've lived as soft of a life as I've lived, then uh, I I pretty much do it. You know what I mean? All right. Well, when Worth encourages you to do something, it's usually a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I tell me, yeah. Now, I mean, one of the one of the things I don't know. Do you want to tackle religion first, or should we talk about the uh, your current life and your book and stuff like that first, and then circle back to your childhood religion? Um, uh, whichever you prefer to start with, I'm amenable. Yeah, well, let's hear let's hear how you grew up a little bit and weave your religion into that because that was one of the things that you know Worth thought would be interesting uh, for us to talk about is your 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 current uh, religious posture is quite a bit different than that in which you were raised. Definitely. So yeah, I was I grew up uh, kind of a really idyllic you know childhood in. Virginia, very close to the the Maryland West Virginia border, so you know right up in in that uh, area. You know, tons of of beautiful hills. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of hunting. Although my family, my my uh, immediate family, didn't hunt a lot, but uh, you know, I had a lot of uh, relatives and things that did. But we we uh, as a young child, we were Methodist, and by that, you know, we went to. Sunday school most, you know, most weeks. And then we went to my grandmother's for, you know, a big, big Sunday dinner, but we, you know, weren't really what I would call religious, um, until a, a fateful, I think a Wednesday evening, uh, when I was in 
about third or fourth grade, my parents dropped us off with a relative and kind of unbeknownst to me, made their way to a like an old fashioned tent revival oh, wow. uh, meeting. And wow. then came back as uh as kind of holy rolling evangelical wow. radicalized uh, uh, in the tent. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so that that then quickly became like the centerpiece in our lives. You know, that was that that religion, um I mean kind of we went to church, you know, on Sundays, Sunday nights, you know, once or twice during the week, and then at least once a year the you know, the tents would come out and and there was healings and 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 that sort of thing. So it was uh quite a quite a change, you know, quite a, a change from you know, from you know, the Methodist yeah. upbringing to you, uh this kind of hellfire young. and brimstone. Right. You were young, but do you have any sense looking back on what led your parents to make that uh, big kind of shift in the way they practiced Christianity? I, you know, it's funny. I've never asked them. Um, I gathered that they you know, became aware of this or in, were invited and, and I'm sure there was something that they felt was, was lacking. And, uh, you know, when they, it, it kind of runs in the family. When we do something, we do it all the way. All right. Yeah. We, we yeah. jump in with both feet and we run. Sure. Um, so they, they jumped in, you know, within a year or two, my father was a, a minister, you know, um, had, you know, had his own church and oh my goodness, you know, so I was like fully, fully ensconced in the, wow. the, the hellfire and brimstone, uh, evangelical, uh, religion. And did you buy that, it as when you were a kid or were you skeptical from uh, day one? I did. I t- I would tell you, I was scared. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's really, really scary, um, which is, is something that, uh, you know, obviously my, my parents didn't consider, um, you know, I did, you know, not, I mean, they obviously felt that they were doing what was right and the, the best thing for us. But, uh, when you go from, uh, you know, kind of learning Bible stories to, you know, hell and damnation you know, on a, on a daily basis, it, uh, it's a scary thing. And I think my, brother and sister were, were younger. And so, uh, okay. you know, my brother was you know, two years younger. So he was maybe in second, first grade, you know, when this happened and my sister was younger than that. So they, they really didn't know much else. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, for me, it was, I was a lot of terror, right. And, uh, and just a constant, uh, you know, being torn between the fact that I'd, I'd kind of experienced the other life, you know, I wanted, there were, there were a lot of rules and regulations that came with this, you know, evangelical kind of Pentecostal, uh, religion. So a lot of things that I had, I had become accustomed to doing, you know, we couldn't do, you know, my baseball league played on Wednesday night. So I couldn't make those games because church was more important. Uh, so there was a lot that, um, for me, the change. So there was, you know, some resentment, you know, on the one hand, but there was some, mm-hmm. some kind of terror on the other hand that I was going to, you know, wind up in a, a, a pit of uh never ending fire. So <laughs> are your parents still uh holy rollers? Uh, they're, I think a little less, uh, rolling happens now, but they, okay. uh, you know, they, they still, uh, attend, you know, attend church regularly. Not the other, not, uh, you know, my father's no longer a, a minister. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I think they've, and it's that, you know, that work to 
later kind of drive a little bit of a, a wedge between us. You know, I, I really kind of fear on my part that I wasn't living up to what they, they thought. So, it, you know, after I joined the Marine Corps, it really became easier to just kind of distance myself. Okay. Did it, did it stick with your siblings, that, that version of religion? Um, no, I think, well, some with my, my sister. And like I said, she grew up, she knew nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, she's still relatively, uh, devout. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, there's, you hear a lot about Catholic guilt. I think there, you know, there's certainly, a, another brand of, uh, <laughs> of guilt for the, for the evangelicals. But, uh, it's, you know, for me, like I said, it was, it came with, um, some kind of remorse, some, uh, guilt certainly but it 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 also really instilled in me and you know later they it kind of came to fruition of like a real interest in religion what other people oh, believe and so i'm yeah. fascinated by by religion world religion um but it's it's really just not for me yeah well i'm guessing in the military you ran into people who i mean what a, that like uh, it, that's the that's the true melting pot of america is the military and you must have run into people who had all sorts of different religious upbringings yes yeah i mean it runs the the gamut uh from you know i've in the same platoon i've had you know certainly catholics uh you know evangelicals uh jewish folks um mm -hmm. jehovah witness you know and it's it's interesting to kind of see how those those uh beliefs and and ideas collide yeah, I think you say somewhere um, on your website or in your writing or on your Substack or somewhere that as soon as you you know you fled your home mm -hmm. and in, into the Marine Corps at what age seventeen? Um, yes, yes, as soon as I could. And was that and religion was part of that? The reason you were you wanted out? It was. It was a part of it. Um, it was. I mean, there were there were. You know, myriad reasons. I, I really wanted to to see the world. You know, when you grew up, kind of where I did, you most folks stuck around. You know, there wasn't a, maybe you'd go to college, and and I had neither the the money nor the uh, the grades for that. Um, so you know, the quickest way out was uh, was the Marine Corps, and it was it was. I don't want to make that sound as though you know it was just a first thing smoking, right? I had wanted to be a Marine for as long as I could remember, you know, as soon as I learned about Marines uh, that had really resonated with me. And in a lot of ways, and I, I talk about this in the book, a lot of ways, you know, the Marine Corps kind of becomes your religion, yeah. you know, I think more, more so than some of the other services, right? You uh, were a cult <laughs> in a lot of ways, yeah. a good, a good cult, but uh, you know, we're very cultish. Yeah. Um, well, tell me about that. What's it like for a 17 year old kid to, uh, join the Marine Corps? I, I, I imagine not everybody makes it. I mean, some, some guys must wash out. You not only stuck with it, but you know, got into some specialty forces stuff that I want to hear about, but what, what was that first immersion like? Yeah. When it's, um, it's boot camp. Uh, they, you know, the Marine Corps has been doing it since 1775, so they've they've gotten it down, right? But uh, for me, uh, being east of the Mississippi, went to Paris Island, South Carolina. So you arrive at night, uh, you're on a bus with a, a bunch of people that you don't know, 
you know, the bus drives over this long causeway through the swamps and you realize that there's, there's no way out. You know, there's, uh, you know, when you, as you come in and, uh, the bus pulls up the, there's, you know, bright lights. The next thing you know, that there's drill instructors screaming at you to, to, you know, fall out of the, uh, get out of the bus and stand on yellow footprints that are painted on. And really from that moment, it becomes uh, just a complete indoctrination to, you know, every, you know, you change your language, really the, you know, the bathroom becomes the head, the, you refer to yourself as this private and that private. And I talk about, uh, the, the idea of Odysseus's ship, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, you know, by the end of boot camp, you're kind of rebuilt. You know, every board is is rebuilt so that you you're never quite the same. You know, you're never going to return to being. You know, if you make it through boot camp, you're never going to go back to being the person that you were before. Um, and that's, I think, a good thing uh, for me. It was. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's how many guys don't make it through boot camp, or what percentage? It's it's really not a terribly high percentage, I don't think. Um, you know, there's there's certainly a handful that uh, either get hurt and they may, you know, get, be given the opportunity to heal up and come back. Um, there, are, you know, some that can't hack it for whatever reason. But uh, I think I think it's about ninety percent. Oh, uh, okay. Of those that start make it, and I could be wrong about that, but I yeah. they do a very good job of. Um, just like I said, it's they it's gonna start from scratch. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter where you came from. Um, you know, and there in boot camp, it's one of the church going to church, and I'd kind of vowed that I was done with church, but mm-hmm. Sunday mornings they're required to give you the opportunity to go to to church service. And so you're either a Protestant or a Catholic. Um <laughs> I think if you're at least when I went, if you were anything other than that, they would, you know, pull in a, a chaplain to to talk with you. But, uh, for the most part, you were a Protestant or a Catholic. You got to go, uh, for like one inter- uninterrupted hour of, uh, you know, where you could, you could sleep in the pews if you wanted, but, uh, <laughs> right, you, know, it, okay. it was, you, you weren't getting yelled at. So everybody went to, to church, you know, oh, regardless of their, their beliefs. Yeah. Um, and even that though yeah. was, uh, you know, an, in, a kind of part of the indoctrination, you know, I remember, there was, you know, a lot of the songs that we sang were, the, the hymns that they sang were, you know, military themed hymns and and talk about, uh, you know, God providing victory for the righteous. And so it was, um, that was certainly the one, you know, hour of the week in boot camp that felt very unnatural to me. Hmm. Well, your experience, I, I take it just from reading the descriptions of the book and stuff, um, your experience in the Marine Corps changed dramatically kind of pre from, from pre nine 11 to post nine 11. So I'd love to hear you talk about that, what that was like, Uh, you know, for, for us, for, for me as a civilian, I I obviously have very vivid memories of nine 11 and, and the emotions that went around it, but um, it must've been quite a bit different experience when you're in the military. Yes, um, it was, and and I think my experience was was very atypical. Um, I was in Darwin, Australia, with my platoon. At this point, I had kind of moved into special operations, and I'd been in the Marine Corps for uh, nearly fourteen years by this point. So I had certainly made it a you know made it a life 
um, and was in charge of a, a 30 man you know, special operations unit training in Darwin, Australia. And that was the, the first night uh, that we had been training that we had some time off. So we went, uh, you know, cleaned our, our weapons, put, put them away, uh, you know, put on civilian clothes and went out uh, to a pub. And I was, I was with, you know, most of the young Marines were, were off chasing Australian women, um, <laughs> myself and the, the four team leaders that, uh, that I had were, were all, you know, older married guys. So we found a pub, you know, kind of tucked ourselves away and, and just set about, uh, drinking Australian beer when, uh, about, you know, 10 o'clock at night, the the soccer game that had been on television changed to the the, tower, the first tower and the bartender, you know, kind of cranked up the volume, yelled and said, Hey, you know, got to, you guys, everybody needs to watch this. And shortly thereafter, the, the, the Marines and sailors that uh, are on what's called shore patrol, the, they're kind of the, the roving guards uh, came running into the bar saying, Hey, you got to get back to the boat, get back to the boat. And uh, by the next morning we were out to sea. Oh wow! So that that meant that we were kind of the closest to the the crisis. So you know, very shortly thereafter, we were uh, in October. I was in Pakistan, and then November in Afghanistan. And what 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 was the scene like? What was the and what was the I guess the the, the mental, emotional, spiritual state of you and your fellow Marines? Um, you know it's. It's it's interesting. So about uh, uh, what a week or two after we had been there, we found ourselves uh, on the side of a, a highway outside of Kandahar, and we were waiting for uh, basically bad guys coming out of Kandahar. And if we found any, then we were you know, our job was to to destroy them. Um, and I had, I remember telling my guys, you know, we were freezing cold. It's December um, that, uh, you know, I, I'm bad luck, obviously, for, you know, I had never in the 14 years I'd been in the Marine Corps, I heard very few shots fired in anger, you know, none of them at me. And uh, though I had trained and, and kind of made it to somewhat of a, you know, within the Marine Corps, a pinnacle of, of what I had wanted to do. Um, you know, I had, I had never been in a gunfight and I didn't really see that happening <laughs> that night. So I was, we were joking about that when the, you know, a big truck full of Taliban came across the road and we, uh, engaged them. And that, you know, that's really, I think an interesting, you know, point as it gets to me in hunting, you know, the, I had, like I said, I'd hunted as a, as a kid, some, not a lot, but, you know, I, I really cherished the times that I spent with my uh, uncle, you know, who would take me out, out deer hunting. And the Marine Corps really didn't provide, you know, the opportunity for that, at least uh, mm -hmm. for me, you know, it's, it's tough. It's very tough even today, you know, for service members that are, are on active duty to, to find the opportunity, the it's challenging to store your weapons. It's, there's just a lot of, uh, and there are groups, you know, DHA and some other groups that are kind yeah. of working to help with that. But, uh, you know, for me, I had not been hunting since I joined the Marine Corps. And, you know, once you join the Marine Corps, there's a part of you that feels that, Hey, now it's your job to kill people. Um, and that was the, 
the first night, the first time I did that. And I was, uh, I had always, anything that I had killed prior to this from, you know, birds to squirrels to, you know, any, anything I had this incredible remorse about, you know, not yeah. that I, uh, I felt that I shouldn't have, I, you know, absolutely understand and, and believe in the, you know, kind of the circle of life. And, uh, but it, it struck me <laughs> that, uh, that I did not have that same feeling or compunction, you know, or, or regret or remorse or anything about, you know, killing these people. Um, and that's been something that I've, you know, trying to, you know, thinking about, you know, getting back into hunting. It's, it's something that's, you know, I feel like I've, uh, there's something I've got to get over. <laughs> yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, did you, do you remember thinking that at the time? Like, you know, it, w- wondering it's, what it's, it would be like to kill a human being and then, yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, we, you know, and part of it goes back to that indoctrination at boot camp. You talk, uh, you know, I went, I joined the Marine Corps in 1987. So there was, there were certainly things that are, would be deemed, you know, that don't happen anymore or things that would be deemed politically <laughs> incorrect nowadays that were, um, but, uh, a lot of the like running cadence songs we were saying a chance. I mean, it was just all about killing. I mean, that's, I mean, hmm. we're the Marine Corps. That's, that is what we do. Right. Um, but, uh, so I, th- I talk about about it in the book some that you know I felt that it would mean more right I felt it would it would uh they call um you know when you your first firefight is called popping your cherry right they it's kind of there's a lot of correlation between sex and uh and and killing you know mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and uh you know I was I, I say in the in the book kind of joking you know i was equally nervous about about both of the things um <laughs> you know i had i had practiced both of them you know with with uh with great vigor you know for for a number of years but uh you know i was i was certainly more, a little more let down by the killing you know i thought it would mean more i thought it would like take something from me um and then i just kind of questioned you know is this you know is this thing you know already taken from me in the years of of uh like some level of humanity or, or whatnot. And I don't, I recognized it at the time. I didn't spend, you know, 20 years gives you ample time to, to kind of go back and, and use, you know, how these, uh, how I was, was impacted and, and it's, you know, I didn't think about it. And then over the, the, you know, the years that followed, I went, you know, back to combat and, and Iraq and, you know, I've killed more people and, um, and it's, it really, when I, when I retired and when I got to the, you know, asked to, Hey, you know, why don't you come out hunting? You know, I, I really had this block, you know, that, you know, I, uh, I don't want to go back and, and hunt and have it not mean anything. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, this is an odd question and, I mean, you can answer it or not. Um, in my book, I I write about the difference for me emotionally of uh, killing a deer from a tree stand at, you know, 50 mm-hmm. yards or, I mean, wounding a deer, which I've done, and then having mm-hmm. to go up and dispatch the deer at close range and how difficult 
the latter is, you know, that killing at a distance and killing mm-hmm. close up is, is so different for me in, in hunting and, um, particularly with a, a larger animal, like a, right. Like a deer. I don't, when I have to ring a, the neck of a pheasant or a duck, I don't think I, you know, I don't love it, but I don't, mm-hmm. it doesn't really grab my soul in any way. So, uh, you know, you, you, I mean, I, what my, what my experience of war is through movies and books, you know, but you, you get the, like the sniper at a thousand yards versus somebody mm-hmm. who's, you know, pulls a bayonet off the end of their rifle and has to attack somebody by hand. Like, is the, do you want to, without, I mean, with a, as much or as little detail as you want, is that part of the experience of, of killing in war? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, and there's, you know, there's been a good bit written about that, the idea of psychic distance in, in, uh, in killing, you know, so the, for the guy flying the jet that drops bombs, you know, he's, you know, very far removed from the act, right? And generally speaking, the closer that you get, the more, um, you know, personal it becomes. I would say the, the kind of caveat to that is that quite frequently, the closer it becomes, the the more people are involved. So, you know, there's, you can't necessarily say with certainty, Hey, I did that. You know, there was like three or four of us that, that shot this person. So, you know, did I kill him or did somebody else? Um, the times that it was for me, because I was a sniper. Um, and then, you know, years later in Iraq and I, I really, the one experience there where I, I shot, uh, I, I, in my head and in the book, I, you know, I, I keep saying, calling him a kid and he wasn't a kid. He was, uh, an adult with a beard, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, he was young. He was mm-hmm. relatively young. And that was, uh, you know, looking at, at someone through a scope is, is, you know, much more intimate. Yeah. Um, and there's been, it's interesting off topic totally, but, uh, while people with, um, you know, pilots, like I said, generally are are so far removed that they're least impacted. What they found more recently is that uh, drone pilots, because quite frequently they'll you know observe a bad guy for long periods of time. Mm. You know, so though they kind of become connected, and even though they're flying from you know somewhere back in the states, you know, thousands of thousands of miles away you know, flying a remotely piloted vehicle, when that vehicle drops a bomb, you know, they have, uh, you know, a, a greater percentage of kind of post-traumatic you know, issues. Yeah. Did, did you have um, fellow Marines who struggled more with the, the killing part when, when you were over there? I did. Um, and it's, I mean, I really think it's, you know, one of the, guarantees is that nothing's guaranteed right on the the way that uh you know combat impacts you know people or you know people on different days um you know i've worked with people that have been uh you know kind of like ice cold uh you know that you know one particular instance you know affects them very heavily uh you know quite often you know we'll find that there's whatever the threshold is for each individual, you know, in regarding moral injury, right? If it, uh, I hit a point where I've done something that, that crosses that threshold, it may not, you know, it may not bother me now, 
but you you can bet that at some point it will, right? At some point it's going to to come back, like all your your sins come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, you know there's it's it's been my belief, and it's it seems to be relatively borne out that the area that I worked in, the special operations, were a little bit less impacted by that, and I, I think that's has to do with the fact that we were we understood you know more of the mission i think we generally bought into the the mission we were given greater access to information you know to make decisions greater access to the, you know the planning and the decision making process um you know generally speaking we're a little bit older uh so you know i think that you know, often we're less impacted, but we're, we're seeing now we're, you know, still seeing guys and, and gals and, and, and part of it's just sheer duration, you know, sheer, you, you can't send, you know, young uh, men and women over and over and over again, over a period of 20 years, you know, without there being some, you know, m- repercussions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is something I've thought a lot about this. I've talked about this with Worth. There's there's another podcast I'm on regularly where we're we discuss issues of masculinity and the the you know quote unquote crisis of masculinity in mm-hmm. in the modern West. What I think all Western culture, not just the United States. Um, but it you know it seems to me that uh, I'm I'm. I'm reading a history right now of the city of Ravenna, which is on the east coast of Italy, because I'm leading a tour over there and just refreshing my memory. Oh. And well, as you might guess, I mean the history of an Italian city between the between the years 300 and 1300. It's pretty much constant <laughs> battle. You know, it's war. Yes. Everyone's everyone's killing everyone. There's a. Um, I'll, I'll give a shout out to your Substacks which I've been reading and my Substack oh. post coming out tomorrow is about a guy who uh, the, the archbishop of, of Ravenna, he wa- he wanted the kind of the, the blessing of the archbishop of Ravenna. So he could be the kind of military leader of that town. And the archbishop said, you need to go to Rome and talk to the Pope. He's the one who grants that authority. So this guy left Ravenna, started heading toward Rome and, uh, soldiers of the archbishop caught up with him, killed him, chopped his head off, put it in a bag and mailed it to Constantinople to <laughs> let the emperor know this guy was not their choice for being the military commander of Eastern Italy at the time. And I mean, this is just a, yet another story from like the year 631 that <laughs> barely anybody knows, you know, for the people at the time, it was like probably the most, momentous event of the year that this guy was assassinated and beheaded, but we don't even remember this guy's name, you know? And it just seems to me that battle military battles and war have been part of shaping who men are for as long as we can remember. And suddenly they're not so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are for you, but they're not for me. They're not for my two boys aged 23 and 19. Um, it's, it's a minority of men who see battle now, not a majority. So I wonder, do you ever think about that in the historical perspective of what that means for, 
for, or have you thought about it in the writing of the book, what it means for American manhood? I, I have. And, you know, I think, and now it's, I mean, you, you can't just say manhood, right? Because I mean, certainly, but, uh, you know, there's women, you know, giving yeah, their lives in, in combat as well. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, and then you take that a step further that, you know, the, percentage it's uh, like less than something like 0.02 percent of people will be in the marine corps you know I, I, yeah. there's like point there's like two percent of of you know graduating high schoolers that are qualified to serve in the military um uh, allegedly right um and you know couple that with the fact that you know you don't have to you know hunt for your food anymore you don't have to you know we've become so far removed and insulated from from anything unpleasant right that uh i think that's you know part of the you know that's that bears the culpability um but certainly you know combat the idea that we i mean spent 20 years which is pretty long i mean i would be you know in most places you know if you look in history you know they fought for a season then they would uh yeah you know, stop and they would, you know, even in Afghanistan, really the big like fighting season. But for 20 years, um, I mean, that really doubles the length of, of the time that we were in Vietnam. It's, you know, many times longer than, than the world wars. Right. So that, uh, you know, for the people that bore the brunt of that, um, like I said, I was in 14 years before that started. And so I was only in for eight years of the of the conflict but the american men and women that joined after you know that happened when they knew you know with certainty that uh that they were going to combat and then you know a lot of them are re you know retiring now reaching 20 years of service and and it's it's pretty amazing and it did it, it you know never uh you know it ceased just to remind me that you know we have you know, for all of the talk of, you know, the old you know, new generations not matching up or living up, you know, they, they've done pretty good yeah. over the last, uh, and there's, there's certainly, uh, negative impacts. And, and I do think kind of more to your, your point that there's, there's been a, uh, there needs to be a resurgence of masculinity. And, and I think that's become a bad word and it's only become a bad word, I think, because we miss in, you know, misinterpret it or miss, uh, define it. Yeah. in a lot of, uh, venues. Yeah, I, I, I agree too. And it's, it's a touchy subject, you know, you, 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 if you even say the word masculinity or that there's a crisis of masculinity, um, you have the, the possibility of offending people because of course men, you know, we've got a lot of problem with male violence in, in our society too. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't know. I, there, there was a time when one of my sons was really thinking about the military and I definitely encouraged him to go that route, but it's just completely unknown in my family. Like I go back mm -hmm. on both sides of my family and I know I had like one uncle who was in the Korean war. And other than mm -hmm. that, I don't, I can go back a hundred years and not don't see anybody who, um, wow. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's also a cultural thing. It's, it's part of some people's families, um, and not part of others. So, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to my my son when I was uh, when he was in high school, you know, came to me and it really had been that we never never wanted to push him into it. I kind of mm-hmm. felt that you know over twenty years I'd kind of done <laughs> done our our part for a while. Yes. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, he he came to me and he was you know, really jazzed. He wanted to do it, wanted to follow my footsteps, and which makes you, I mean, makes you very very proud. I mean, on the one hand, on the, the other hand, you know, I'd put his mother through a lot, you know, over, you yeah. know, not, not only her, you know, taking care of the family while I was gone, but, you know, nights of worry and, and things like that. So the, uh, while I didn't discourage him, you know, I didn't encourage him and ultimately, you know, we were, you know, he decided to, to do something else and, and that didn't hurt my feelings at all. Yeah. Interesting. Um, tell me a little bit now I want to get into the book because your book mm. is really about the the development of a whole new arm of special forces in the Marines, right? So you want to tell me right. how that came about and how you were chosen as one of the, I mean, it's interesting just reading like the synopsis of the book. It's almost like out of a movie, you know, like you're, <laughs> it, it's, it seemed to me only in movies where they're like, go out, pick your guys, you know, you get, you get to pick your own team. Um, but sounds like that really actually happened to you. Yes, it was, uh, I mean, kind of the things that the Marines lay awake, you know, dreaming about. Um, so the, a very, you know, truncated synopsis of, of special operations history, the, when the Iran Contra or the Iran, uh, uh, hostage situation occurred, uh, the attempt to rescue them was uh, kind of a debacle from a military standpoint. And because of that, the, uh, the U.S. military decided that it needed a special operations command, like an overarching structure under which the different special operations entities operated. And so the, the Navy SEALs, you know, rather than working directly for the Navy, they went underneath the special operations command, the Army Special Forces, the Green Berets, as you know, most people know them, the Army Rangers. And when that happened in 1987, the Marine Corps opted out. They said, hey, we we want to keep our special operations guys close hold. Um, and that was the way that things evolved until 2001. And you know, when 9-11 happened, the Secretary of Defense was Donald Rumsfeld. He recognized that there was going to be a greater need for special operations forces in the, the global war on terror. So he demanded that uh, all of the, the, the Navy SEALs create more SEALs, the Army create more Green Berets, and told the Marine Corps that, hey, you guys this time are going to participate. And the Marine Corps still pushed back, but uh, the final decision was that we would create a a test bed unit and it would be you know less than 100 men um of the actual kind of assault force about 30 of us and then you know we had a large intelligence section and and whatnot but i was i had the you know phenomenal uh privilege of being selected as one of four team leaders uh for that unit and where our job was to basically go to iraq and prove that the, the marines were capable of operating at that level all right. Um, you were how old at the time? I was, uh, I was, I would have been 33, 34. Okay. So I had been, you know, been in for a, a, a pretty long while, although I was the youngest of the, the team leaders. So we were largely, we were older, an older group, very experienced. Um, 
And like you mentioned, I was kind of given the ability to, within reason, pick uh, the the folks that I wanted. So I had, you know, what I considered a real dream team of of guys that I admired. And uh, so we trained up for a while, went to Iraq, and uh, we worked basically underneath the Navy SEAL headquarters. Uh, so we were referred to as Task Unit Raider, uh, which was kind of harkens back to the the Marine Raiders of World War II that were the Marine Corps and the nation's really the nation's first special operations force. So it was, it was really cool to be a part of that lineage. Um, and then based on the success of our deployment to Iraq, the decision was made that we would create a, a component of the United States special operations command, uh, called the Marine special operations command. So, and that's, that's where I continue to work. I, I left the Marine Corps, left active duty in, uh, 2008. And immediately uh, came back to work in civilian clothes and you know, as uh, their training and education director. So I've I've worked at the school that trains Marine Raiders. Okay. Now and so it's it's been it's been really cool to be able to you know be there from the beginning and and kind of watch as things have progressed and still be able to have some uh, hand in in the development of uh, the the Raider of today. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure it's quite an exceptional group of men and women who are doing that. Yes. Yeah, it is. And the book really largely, uh, you know, there's some, it you know, goes back a little bit to my childhood uh, and bounces around a bit, but largely covers that kind of three year window, uh, for the most part that we were started, you know, from nine 11, uh, really through our deployment to Iraq and then a, a little bit of the the startup of the the larger organization mm. now let's let's talk about writing um you, you when you got out of active service you went back and got a master's in creative writing and i wonder what what was the pull toward um toward being a writer you know i had uh thought a lot about this and I I've answered this question a lot lately and, and to various podcasts and, and, you know, interviews and things for the book. Um, you know, I was, my father instilled in me, a this, uh, love of reading at a really young age. I mean, he had this, what I thought was a huge library and, uh, you know, from the, the Hardy boys and you know, just Westerns, uh, you know, classics, you know, he would read them to me until I was old enough to to read. So, and almost as soon as I started reading and learned to write, I was like, Hey, you know, I want to write my own stories. Um, and, uh, that was not really fostered in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily foster a lot of creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of put that aside when I, when I joined the Marine Corps, but when I got, got out, I had, uh, the, the, the GI bill and the opportunity to use that for schooling. So I got, uh, a, a master's degree in, in liberal studies, which, which really wound up, I mean, almost all of the classes that I took were either literature classes or religion, some sort of comparative religion classes. Cause those were wow. kind of the two things that fascinated me. And, uh, you know, as a process or, of taking these literature classes, we had to do a lot of writing and, you know, one of the professors, just kind of really encouraged me to, to, to write. And the first 
you know, experience that I wrote about was the experience that I, I mentioned the, the youngish man in Iraq, um, uh, mm-hmm. that I, I shot with a, a sniper rifle and it was a, turned into an essay called death letter. And I really thought when I wrote that, that I mean, this is, is important, you know, it's important to yeah. me, but I think it's important. Uh, so I submitted it over the span of several years. I, I, must have submitted it to 20 different publications and was rejected, um, you know, summarily by each of them. But eventually it was, it was published. And, and that really kind of was what, you know, ultimately led to the book. So it's, um, but yeah, I think, I, I think there's, there's immense value for, for anyone, but, uh, I think, you know, especially for veterans to kind of write their, you know, write their stories down. Um, yeah. If if nothing else, it, it makes you reflect on it. You know, kind of go back and relive it, get it out of your head and onto paper. Um, so there's there's absolute value in that, uh, and and so I've you know I and worth if you know do some things where we work with veteran writers to to encourage that. Yeah. Now I I um I did read that death letter and and I I guess you must have moved it to a different spot because the initial link that. Worth sent me a few months ago, didn't work anymore. So maybe it, you've moved it to uh, one of your Substacks or something like that, or maybe it's in the maybe it's in the book, and so you got to keep it. It's <laughs> keep well, it's, it, it's then. it 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 uh, parts of it. I mean, it is it's split up and it's a little bit different, but it's it's certainly in the book. I think uh, I had my son uh, got us make a better website uh, yeah. for me, and in that, I think we that law got lost uh, from the. The web. Gotcha. Okay. That well, essay. Another reason to buy the book. Uh, exactly. I mean, such such a tradition of and worth. And I've actually talked about this quite a bit, but I'm I I took a class in. I mean, it's so funny, John, because in the fall of 1986, I guess you're probably a year behind me in in high school. I graduated in spring of 86, so fall of 86. I'm you know, you're, you're a year away from joining the Marine Corps and I'm at a bougie Ivy league university, uh, <laughs> sitting in a writing class, uh, that changed my life. And it was called the Iliad and memories of war. And we <laughs> read, we started with the Iliad and we worked our way through war literature up through Vietnam, um, wow. up through, you know, I think our, the last book we read was Michael Hur's dispatches, but we read, okay. Uh, Xenophon's Anabasis and we read Red Badge of Courage, you know, and mm. we read it just, it was incredible. Um, and I think that was the first time it dawned on me that, that I had missed something by not seeing combat and knowing that I never would see combat, that, that there was mm-hmm. something that forged these writers um, that, that I had missed out on. And I've been fascinated by war literature ever since and have, devoured it and read several, you know, either memoirs or novels every year. And then of course, watch all the movies, all the war movies. But I mean, you're, you're entering into a long and illustrious line of, you know, correspondents who have written about their experience in battle. And I wonder, is that intimidating? What's that like to write into that genre? Yes. I mean, you really can't spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking about it or, or yeah, it would be absolutely daunting. I, you know, one of the, one of the kind of war books that really 
impacted me and not not the first time I read it, but when I went back and, and it's funny because Worth shares a similar thoughts with uh, Tim O'Brien's um, The Things They Carried. Yeah. Um, you know, that is kind of always been the, the benchmark as a yeah. you know, Vietnam memoir or it's a fiction, fictional. Yeah, uh, he calls it a novel, but right. Yes. Yeah, it's and and I he it's it's interesting. I've always been you know fascinated by you know with with memoir when 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 writers write their you know what's the definition of truth that you yeah. you use and Tim O'Brien says hey I'm writing this and calling it fiction uh, you know because sometimes fiction is truer than the truth yeah and I I talk about that a little bit in the the in my book because you know in the Marine Corps especially <laughs> we're we're not slaves to the truth. Right, the the Marine Corps, you know, history is is uh, you know taught to us as as gospel, right? And it's crafted to kind of push us forward in you know times when other people would would run backward. Um, so there's there's certainly you know there's things that I say in the book that I'm saying are are true, um, you know, regarding our history that you know, you have to look at it kind of through that lens that this is the truest way that I can tell you the thing that I, I learned, you know, it's mm-hmm. sometimes the, what, what uh, Tim O'Brien calls happening truth is, uh, you know, yes, less true than, or more true than truth, truth, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so how, what was the process then of writing the book under those, you know, in, in that, in that same you know, crowd of incredible authors and writers who are doing it. I obviously, you, as you say, you can't think about it too much, but you must have, you must have known, you know, that that that's yeah. the the kind that's the way. I mean, to to get to go from the profound to the profane. I mean, that's the way your book's going to yeah. be marketed. That's how it's going to be classified on Amazon and in bookstores and mm-hmm. things like that. Yes, um, you know, I like I said, yeah, I couldn't spend a lot of time thinking, <laughs> thinking about yeah, that or, yeah. or allowing the weight of that to, to press down on me uh, you know, as it went, or I, I probably would have never, you know, gotten anything on paper. Um, you know, I put myself under a deadline that was kind of, you know, somewhat self-imposed and somewhat contractually, <laughs> you know, composed by the, by the, the publisher mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, really just focused on, you know, a chapter at a time, you know, yeah. you know, and the, with the, the intent, I think of, of trying to write something that's I, the, the trouble that I have with a lot of global war on terror era, you know, memoir that I've read. Um, and it's not, not trouble, not in a negative way so much, but, um, a lot of them were written very, very shortly you know, after the incidents that they're, yeah. they're writing about without, you know, some time. And that's, you know, what memoir mean, right? Memory, right? So yeah. some time for it to breathe and, and can some consideration. And, you know, a lot of them are very, I feel, you know, pointed towards a military audience and, you know, being a guy with a, an MFA, um, <laughs> you know, whatever that means, uh, you know, I kind of felt some obligation to, to certainly be reflective and to try to write you know, for a, uh, you know, for a civilian audience to, to write in a way that's understandable, a way that, uh, you know, it's not full of bragging or, um, you know, it's, 
like, hey, here's here's what happened. Here's what it meant to me. Here's what I thought about it at the time. And here's how I kind of reflect on it now. And kind of keeping that idea of the, you know, they always tell you as a writer to keep an ideal reader in mind. And, yes. uh, you know, I try to keep the idea of, hey, you know, I'm trying to write this for someone who is, you know, um, you know, never been in the military, but is interested and, you know, kind of wants to understand what the experience was like, what the people involved in it are like, you know, the toll that it takes and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. So I hope, I hope I was, uh, and, and I figured if I did that, you know, I'm I'd still tell some, cause like you said, it, it was, uh, in many ways it was kind of pulled right out of a, a Hollywood script, you know, this, yeah. this idea. So, yeah. uh, so there's excitement certainly in it. There's, uh, there's yeah. all sorts of things in it. So I figured that would kind of guarantee the military audience, you know, but if I can, you know, if I can get, you know, target it towards the, the civilian audience, it's, uh, yeah. Just is curious, and I think, like you, you mentioned, there's, you know, there's just so, so few people today have served or, or from families where where that's, uh, you know, prevalent. So I think there's a lot of people that are just curious um, and want to know what it was all about. So that's my attempt to to shed a little light on things. Yeah, and and I'm guessing it had to be vetted by by the Marine Corps. It did, uh, and that was six months from. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. From the time I sent it, uh, and it came back with, you know, black marks, you know, redacted things that I had to, to remove or change. Um, not a lot, but uh, there was some, so they were all, you know, things that I could, I could easily, you know, talk around or, or, um, so yeah. I don't think I lost you know, a lot in that other than of course, six months, you know, <laughs> the <laughs> right, book would be right, out, right. probably out, out by now had I, uh, yeah. not had that, uh, that delay. Yeah. Well, with any luck, some movie producer will read your, your book and, uh, you know, we'll see it on the big screen, but yeah, I'm excited for you. I, I know the feeling, um, it's, I've got, I've got a book coming out in, you know, in uh, a month and a half. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's that you and I are both in that kind of no man's land of, uh, we'll, we'll call it for the sake of this podcast, a, a demilitarized zone where you don't, <laughs> You're kind of you kind of don't know where you stand yes. until the book comes out in the world and then find out if it it's t- to rapturous applause or crickets. You just you Exactly. Just <laughs> yeah, and I I have you know, 6 months still to wait, so it it won't be out until August. Yeah. yeah. It's available for pre-sale now. Oh but, yeah. Uh, I know. Won't be out yeah. until the 13th of August. All right. Well, I hope you have a good summer and you can, you know, rest easy knowing that it's going to, that it's done and it, it can come out and, and it will be what it will be, you know? Indeed. Writers, we just have to put our stuff out in the world and let's see, see where, see where it flows in the universe. That's kind of a, I, that's, that's what I've found after, I don't know, 14 or 15 books. So. Yeah. I well, wish you, yeah, it's a it's a pretty big act of faith. Um, but yeah, you know, if, if you're if you're going to if you're going to write, then that's that's part of the bargain. Yeah, you got that right. Well, I really really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's it's great to meet you over the internet, and uh, I hope that we can uh, meet in person sometime. Where it seems to make those kind of things happen too, and you know. <laughs> I, if I get down there, we might be able to, maybe we'll, we'll see if we can't get a shotgun in your hand and go chase some ducks or 
quail or something like that. That sounds good. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. 